Our gospel reading comes to us from the gospel according to Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. And Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Grace and peace to you this morning from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So starting around the age of 17, I started dedicating at least two days of my life uh, every year to a particular religious observance. Uh, What it is, it's referred to typically as the NFL draft. (laughs) I love it. I got to be honest. Uh, Christy, not so much, right? Uh, But me, I think it's great. Uh, You see, I'm a big fan of college football in particular. And what I love is watching these guys try to make that jump to the NFL. And so one of the things you can just feel on draft day, or draft days, I should say, uh, is whenever a team chooses someone, they do that because they want that person to be great. Uh, That's kind of the expectation, is it not? Uh, No one chooses a player that they want to have be mediocre, right? They want that person to be great. And yet the thing is, one of the most fascinating phenomena surrounding the draft is that every single year you have a couple of big-name players who end up being total busts. Uh, And if you're not familiar with that terminology, what a bust is, it's someone who on the one hand has all the potential in the world to be great. And yet on the other hand, there's some sort of underlying issue that's not being addressed. Uh, In other words, everyone thought they were going to be amazing and yet their talent was always held back and hindered by some sort of problem that they just could not get past. Uh, So just to give a few examples to put some flesh on this, I promise it'll eventually make a biblical point. Just kind of hang with me, right? Um, One of the earliest busts I remember was 1987. It was a guy named Brian Bosworth. The Boz is what everyone called him, right? I think ESPN did a 30 for 30 on him. It was great. Uh, He was kind of this outlandish character of a guy. Uh, He was a linebacker at Oklahoma in particular. And the thing is, he was incredible in college. Uh, He would just fly around. He had this bleach blonde hair. Uh, He was incredibly ripped. It looked like you took Hulk Hogan and put him in a football uniform. And so for the Boz, I think everyone thought, like, this guy's going to be amazing, right? In fact, the Seattle Seahawks in particular thought he would be amazing, taking him with the first pick in 1987. And yet here's the thing. Maybe they shouldn't have done that. (laughs) I see, when it came down to it, uh, turns out the boss was a whole lot of style with very little substance underneath that. I mean, he had a lot of flash. He made a lot of big hits. Uh, He totally looked the part, part of which he was on steroids, just side note. Uh, And yet the dude was just not a great football player. And since he never really changed his approach, became a fundamentally sound player, 
he never made an impact. The most memorable thing from his career is he got run over by Bo Jackson, right? And so he was a bust. He was a total bust. Um, what's a bust? It's someone who on the one hand has all the potential in the world to be great. You know, on the other hand, has issues that are not getting addressed. Uh, another guy. It's the only other one I'll mention. This one's more recent. Uh, in 2007, the Oakland Raiders, the then Oakland Raiders, had the number one pick in the draft, and they picked a guy named, quarterback at LSU, named Jamarcus Russell was his name. And the thing is, at the time, you could kind of understand the pick. Uh, the guy had a cannon of an arm. At his NFL Pro Day, that's where like, all the scouts come and watch at your college. He was like chucking the ball all over the place. Uh, he had this incredible performance. And so once again, everyone thought, this guy's going to be great. And yet maybe no one should have thought that. <laughs> it's because one thing no one seemed to pay much attention to, which actually you couldn't help but miss it, uh, but the guy had a bit of a weight problem all through college. Uh, and I know it's like not PC to fat shame. Someone's like, I'm not trying to do that, right? Um, but have you ever seen a successful chubby NFL quarterback? No, right? It just, it doesn't work. Uh, and you see what happened is he got into the NFL and he ballooned up to 280 pounds. Try whatever. If he likes to eat, fine. Uh, and so in spite of the fact that he had all of this incredible arm, he also had a ravenous stomach that he could not control. Uh, in fact, last week I went on his Twitter account just kind of like, what's this guy up to? He literally tweeted about how much he liked crawfish. Like, oh my goodness. Clearly, he likes food, right? And so in spite of all his talent, he was a bust. Um, what's, he, what's a bust? It's someone who, on the one hand, has all the potential in the world to be great, and yet, on the other hand, has some sort of underlying issue that's not being addressed. And you see, if that's the case, meaning those issues are never actually dealt with, uh, then whatever potential you have, it's never going to be realized. Uh, so here's why I'm talking about this. Uh, last week's passage, it was all about what it means to be great. If you remember that? Uh, if you were with us, Joe gave what I thought was a really good message on what true greatness looks like. Uh, so not athletic greatness, as much as we can tend to gravitate towards that and like it, uh, but greatness of life is what we were talking about. And you see, what our passage says was if you really want to be great, you have to be a quote-unquote, do you remember the Wow, you guys didn't pay attention. <laughs> no, servant of all. Maybe you're just afraid to say it. No, servant of all is what makes you great. Uh, which, by the way, is really just saying, if you want to be great, you've got to be like Christ. That's greatness, right? Uh, in other words, having a heart full of humility. That's greatness, right? Uh, living a life full of love. That is greatness. Being the kind of person who is incredibly free, totally full Walking in faith, no matter what life throws at you, that's greatness, right? You see someone like that, that's great. The thing is, this might sound kind of weird coming from the pulpit, but I want you to hear this this morning. You were made to be great. Did you know that? God made you to be great. Uh, that was sort of the premise of last week's passage, uh, that you literally do have the capacity to become Christ-like. In fact, that's why Christ chose you. It, was so you, it wasn't so you could be kind of like mediocre, muddling. No. He chose you so that you could become great. 
uh, just to be clear about something, if only because I think what I'm saying can be like wildly misleading, right? Uh, I am not saying that you and I are just inherently great. No, no. Um, as if the reason God chose us is we were just really good people, right? He was so impressed. No, that is not true. I'm not saying that. I'm not here to like boost our self-esteem. Uh, the fact of the matter is, apart from Christ, you and I are totally lost. And yet, with that being said, the call of Christ, uh, the fact that he has opened our ears to God's voice, that gives you the potential to be great. Uh, the promise of grace, the fact that he can rework your past, set you free from sin, that gives you the potential to be great. Uh, the gift of the Spirit, the fact that Christ himself lives in you, you have the potential to be great. And so again, part of what last week's passage was saying is you could actually be great. And yet the issue is, you get to today's passage and what it's saying is, you could also be a bust. And what's a bust? A bust is someone who has all the potential in the world to be great on the one hand, but on the other hand, they have these underlying issues that are just not being addressed. Um, by issues, I obviously don't mean like NFL draft type issues. I mean sin issues, right? Meaning all these things that in spite of the manifold graces God is giving to us, we are still held back and hindered from answering the call of Christ. And so as we go to our passage, what it's about is just about actually addressing these things. And as we go to it, we're going to look at three things for the kind of rest of the way. It's going to be the action, the attitude, and the aim. That's what we're going to call it. The action, the attitude, and the aim. What do I mean by that? Uh, first of all, the action. What is Christ calling us to do? I think there are kind of two related things he's calling us to do. So that's going to be the action. We'll look at that. Uh, second, what kind of attitude is he calling us to have towards these issues, that is? I think there's a very particular kind of attitude being conveyed in the passage. So I want to spend some time looking at that. And then finally, we'll look at the aim, meaning like, why would we do these things? What is the goal of doing these things, addressing these issues, that is? Uh, so the action, attitude, aim. Let's start with the action, like what we're called to do. Uh, so when Christy and I first moved out to P Pennsylvania, one of the bigger adjustments we had to make, aside from the fact that there's this thing called winter out there, Ah, <laughs> uh, but the other adjustment we had to make uh, is every time when spring rolls around, things, a bunch of things just pop up out of the ground, okay? And what I mean is weeds in particular, they flourish out there. And the thing is, I grew up here, uh, and so whenever I see a couple of weeds in the yard, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, weeds here tend to be kind of slow growing, don't they? Uh, they're not going to like completely overtake one's yard in a matter of days. Uh, and yet at our home in Pittsburgh, that's exactly what they would do. Uh, and so I remember distinctly our first spring there. I'm not like used to this, right? I don't have it in my mind. First spring there, I went out one day, each side of our home in particular on the sides, uh, there's just a couple of weeds starting to pop up. And the thing is, I don't think much of it. It's kind of a busy time of year for me. It's actually during Lent, which is like this busy time of year heading right into Easter. Uh, and so I just kind of ignore it for a couple weeks. And you see, next thing I know, it's a Saturday morning, the week after Easter, we go outside. And I'm not joking, we have a mini Amazon jungle <laughs> on each side of our home. Uh, we've got poison ivy growing up 
the walls. Uh, we've got a bunch of spiky things that I don't know what they are growing on the ground. There are bugs everywhere. There are bees buzzing around. It is just bad, right? Uh, and so something has to be done. I'm convinced of this. I know it. Uh, and yet here's the thing about it. I'm an incredibly lazy gardener. <laughs> and so what I do with our weeds is I just go get the weed whacker. <laughs> it's a weed whacker, right? That's what it's for. And so I just like I'm digging into the dirt, right? I'm just knocking those things out. I've got gloves on. I've got my snowboarding goggles on. I clearly look like I know what I'm doing. Maybe not, but still. I knock them down. I get in my car. I drive to Home Depot, and I buy upwards of 25 bags of mulch. In my Ford Focus, sitting out there with Pennsylvania, I'm like drooping to the ground, right? I get home, I get out, and I lay it on thick on that yard. Uh, there's got to be six inches of mulch on top of the soil. Uh, and so I finish it up. I go back inside, and Chris is like, what are you doing out there? And I take off my snowboarding goggles. Say, oh, you know, just took care of the weeds. And the thing is, it's totally believable. It is. You look outside, the yard looks great. There's not a single weed in sight. Uh, and so she believes me. The problem is solved. I believe myself. The problem is solved. All the neighbors believe the problem is solved. And so I'm feeling great. Uh, like literally just one or two hours of work and I totally solved the weed problem. I'm an incredible gardener. Did you know that? And yet, what do you think happened? Fast forward about a month at most and every single one of their, those weeds, along with what appeared like children of theirs, pushed right up through that mulch. And we were right back where we started. Now, you see, because here's the thing about gardening that I learned that year. Uh, if you want to have a good garden, you can't just address the visible part of it. Uh, you've actually got to get down into the soil. In particular, instead of just cutting off the fruit of the weeds, if I can call it that, uh, you've got to dig down to the root of the problem. You can't just cut off the top. You can't just cover it with mulch. You've got to actually dig down and eliminate the cause. is what it takes to have a great garden. So random, but if you go back to the book of Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, one of the first things he puts them in charge of is a garden. It's the Garden of Eden, right? You see, whenever the early church would read this, they would interpret it not just as a temporary task given only to Adam and Eve. No, rather it was an eternal call laid on all of God's people. Meaning, in particular, that the quote-unquote the quote garden that you and I are called to cultivate and keep, it is our life as a whole. Uh, maybe a better way to put that. The garden that God has given you to care for, it is your heart. Uh, it's your mind. It's your thoughts. And it's all the things that flow out from that. And you see, the reason we can't just let our garden go, right? Be lazy gardeners is God wants us to bear good fruit. In other words, he wants us to live the kind of life that is life-giving to the world around us, the kind of life that brings glory to his name. That's what it means to have a good garden. That's what it takes, to go back to earlier, to be a great person. You and I were made to be great. And yet the issue we face is twofold. Uh, one is, ever since the fall, we've got a, a lot of weeds in our gardens. 
things that aren't supposed to be there. Thoughts that are impure. Desires that are unholy. Things that we know God is not pleased with. All of that is in the garden that we call our life. You see, the second problem we face is we are incredibly lazy gardeners. What I mean by that is we tend to address just the visible part of the garden. Meaning what other people can see in our life, most of us take at least halfway decent care of that. And yet under the soil, I mean inside of our heart, things are allowed to stay pretty much the same in there. It's a real problem. You see, if we go to today's passage, this is exactly what it's addressing. And so what does Christ say? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, if your eye causes you to sin. And so what is he calling us to address? The cause of our sin. In other words, if you really want to become great, in other, meaning if you really want to become a genuinely Christ-like person, then here's the thing about that. It's not just about restraining your deeds. It's not what it's about. It is rather about uprooting your desires. It's about addressing your thoughts. It's about reorienting your heart. It's about becoming the kind of person who isn't just putting a big pile of religion or decency or civility on top of, a, on top of the soil of a heart that has all sorts of issues still. All of which are just trying to break through. And all of which you are just trying to hold in. But no, right? Instead, what this passage is saying, you get down to the root cause. You dig into those desires. You start ripping out weeds by the root. And you see, that is the action that he's calling us to. It's an internal sort of action. It's not just to address our deeds, but even more so our desires. And not just our outer life, but even more so our inner life. And not just the things that other people see. But maybe even more so the things that no one sees. Except God, that is. So that's the first thing we're called to do. It's an internal thing. uh, Addressing an internal problem. The next one is an external problem. So we're going to look at that too. Uh, Just to kind of illustrate it. It's a plant kind of day. uh, Just to warn you. Uh, But one of our favorite places out in Pittsburgh, we used to go to this place called Phipps Conservatory. I don't know if you've been to a conservatory before. I don't think they're that much of a thing in here. They're huge out there, right? Um, And they're also literally huge. Uh, This one in particular, Phipps Conservatory, it's the size of about like 10 to 15 football fields. It's enormous. Um, And every room they have, it's about the size of this sanctuary. It's got all sorts of rooms, each one being about the size of the sanctuary, and each one also mimicking a climate from a different part of the world, right? Uh, So you get different plants growing from all over the world. It's actually an amazing sort of thing. Um, It's got all these rooms that you could walk through. Uh, and we used to go to this one room in particular. It was called the desert room. <laughs> go figure, right? It's like, be dead of winter outside, 25 degrees and snowing. We would go into this one room. It'd be 85, bone dry. Cactus all over the place. Because it'd be like, ah, home, right? 
And so we love that, right? Uh, one plant in particular that they had in there, it was called an African grape tree is what it was. Uh, so it was part of the like, Sahara, I guess. Is that, is that right? Don't check me on this. Uh, it was out in Africa, in the desert out there. Anyway, uh, the African grape tree out there. And the thing is, even though the climate of the room was totally similar to what it would have had in Africa, uh, since the sun on Pittsburgh is so low on the horizon throughout the winter, from about November to March, this tree would just essentially be one big stump, is what it looked like. Uh, it would not have any leaves. It would not be bearing any fruit. If you just looked at it, you would get the impression that it was dead. And so throughout the winter, they'd always put this sign down beneath it just to kind of remind you. It said, I'm not dead, I'm dormant. And for whatever reason, people loved that sign, right? It actually started to get like kind of a cult following all the way to the point that they started selling a shirt in the bookstore. It was a dark green shirt, had a big stump on it and it said, I'm not dead, I'm dormant. And so literally every time we went into the gift shop, Christy would say, Garrett, that shirt is perfect. You should get it. Be like, really? <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> anyway, uh, the reason I bring this up, one thing I learned about plants is even though they might look dead at different periods of time, they're really just waiting for the right conditions. And so they're not really dead, they're just dormant, right? Uh, so what that means is once you get them back into the right conditions, they're going to come right back to life. So here's the thing about that. If you read spiritual authors from like the Middle Ages, it's good, good stuff. So spiritual authors from the Middle Ages in particular, uh, one thing they would focus on quite a, bit, quite a bit is the fact that when it comes to the desires we have that are sinful, no matter how much you battle them, they will never die. Instead, what they will do is they will just go dormant. Which, not to be misheard, that's a good thing. It means they're not wreaking havoc on your life anymore, right? And yet the fact of the matter is, no matter how dead a sin in our life might seem, it is just waiting for the right conditions. And so what that means for us is on top of addressing the sinful desires and thoughts we have, we've also got to address the conditions that would be conducive to their fulfillment. In other words, even if you feel like you don't struggle with a particular sin, do not put yourself in a situation where you might. You see, because the sin in you is never dead. It's just dormant. Uh, so that's the action this passage is calling us to, right? That's an internal address and an external address. Let's go to the attitude uh, we need to have in order to do that well. In order to kind of get at this, I want you to imagine something. Let's say you're married, or if you are married, you're not hard to imagine. Let's say you're married. Uh, if you're not married, let's just pretend that you are, just imagine it. Uh, husbands first, I want to address you first. Uh, so guys, uh, one day you get a knock on your door and you open it up and it's just some random guy standing there. You don't know what he's there for and so you go, Hi. And he goes, hi. And he goes, is there something you want? And he goes, yeah, can I come in? And you're like, what do you mean, can you come in? And he goes, she didn't tell you? Tell me what? Oh my goodness, I've been talking to your wife for months. What? Come on, dude. I've been asking her on a date all this time. I'm here to take her out. And all of a sudden, he just starts barging into your home. 
Uh, he's pushing through the door. He's incredibly forceful. He is greasy as all get up. And so just to put it out there, guys, it's kind of thought exercise. Uh, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do, right? Uh, let's try something on. Oh, really? Uh, welcome to our home. Come on in. Uh, take a seat on I'm, Don't get me wrong. I don't, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of this. Uh, but can I get you something to drink? No, right? What do you do? You pull that guy in, you punch him in the face, and you shove him out. Like, come on, right? Uh, wives, similar scenario. You're standing there with the husband. Another woman comes up, and she just starts kissing your husband right in front of your face. What do you do? Let's try this on. Oh, what? that's kind of surprising. Ah. Looks like I'm going to have to make my peace with this. <laughs> no! At 8.30, Mary Henderson said she would scratch her eyes out. <laughs> Mary Henderson! Point being, you take her out, right? It's because here's the thing. If someone or something is intruding on a relationship that matters to you, you don't allow it. Don't allow it. You don't tolerate it. You don't let it linger. You don't just try to manage it. No, you get violent with it, right? And yet, here's why I bring this up. I do not think that's our approach when it comes to our relationship with Christ. We are way too soft, guys. We just kind of let these things in. We let them linger. We kind of make our, our, our peace with their presence in our life. And yet, no, don't do that. If Christ really does matter to you, you get violent with those things. In our passage, the language Christ uses, it's if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. It's violent. If your foot causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. If your eye is causing you to sin, what do you do? You tear it out. And so it's this intolerant attitude that we're being called to have. And just to be clear about something, can I have a caveat? Uh, don't literally do this. Like, do not come to worship next week looking like a pirate, right? Got like a hook, a peg, and a patch. It's like, he said, cut him up. No, right? That's not what this is calling for. Uh, and so do not take this literally. And yet here's the thing. Take it seriously. It is meant to be taken seriously. In fact, you can actually feel a certain amount of seriousness in the passage itself. Can you not? And if you just listen to the words Christ uses, the attitude he's conveying is one in which we are intolerant of our sin. We do not make peace with it. We make war on it. So what does that look like? Just to point one, one thing out, I'm not going to get too much into it, but one thing, uh, when it comes to the thoughts that you have, this is how a lot of this starts, when it comes to the thoughts that you have, even if the thought of sin enters your mind, knocks on the door, tries to come in, you don't let it stay. You don't give it room. You don't open the door, you don't welcome it in, you don't let itself get comfortable in your mind. You pull it, punch it, push it out, right? Thought of anger, shove it out. Lust, shove it out. Pride, shove it out. Again, don't make peace with these intruders. You see, because here's the thing about it. The longer we let a thought linger, 
the less control we will have over it. And so it is not uncommon for what starts out as just a superficial thought that we could have pushed out a long time ago eventually becomes a deep-seated disposition from which we can't break free. It's always wanting to push up and break into your outer life. And no matter how much human religion you pile on top of that, it's not going to work. And don't get me wrong, it'll make it invisible so no one else sees it. But it's not going to fix the problem you have. So we got to shove it out to begin with, right? We don't let it plant itself in our mind. If it already has, we start confessing it and doing everything possible to uproot it. The attitude being we don't tolerate these intruders on our closeness to Christ. So that's the attitude. We've done the action, the attitude. Let's go to the aim, um, meaning why would we do this? It just seems so dramatic, right? But why would we do this? So I think a lot of you already know this, but for the last four consecutive we, uh, weekends, we've had a funeral here. I don't know. I think funerals are really sad, my honest opinion. Um, I don't care which way you try to spin it. I think it's just a really hard thing. Uh, and yet, even I say that, say that at the same time, I think funerals do have a way of putting things in perspective for us. Uh, and what I mean by that is they can remind you that our life here is actually pretty short. And by reminding you of that, what they can do is they can put in perspective what really matters. Uh, so in our passage, maybe you kind of picked up on this as we read it. Uh, But in order to explain why we ought to address these things in our lives, these issues, what the Lord does is he talks quite a bit about the fact that someday we're going to die. And in particular, he talks a little bit about heaven and a heck of a lot about hell. And the thing is, as I read this, I think this can be totally misheard. Uh, As if Jesus is just saying to us, you better clean up your act or you're going to go to hell. Do you hear that from the passage? Uh, So I got to be honest, I don't hear it that way. Not at all. If only because the whole clean up your act or go to hell, that whole bit, it smacks of frustration. If there's one thing I know about the heart of Christ is that it's one of compassion, not frustration. Uh, Not to mention he doesn't seem super interested in scare tactics, by the way. Uh, But you see, I think a better way to interpret all the talk about hell in this instance is if you just think about all the things that are holding you back uh, or making you half-hearted in the call of Christ. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, do I really want to die like this? See, because in the Bible, hell is the place of eternal regret, is what it is. Where your worm never dies, is what our passage says about it, meaning regret just eats at you forever. And so why address these things in your life? Because you do not want to get to the end of your life and regret how little you grew. 
You see, the truth is, if I can just remind you one more time, you were made to be great. That's why he chose you. He loved you and wanted to make something great out of your life. And yet if you're anything like me, you're nowhere near that right now. And I don't want to be misheard on this front. It does not mean he doesn't still love you, right? He still does. He's still full of affection for you. He is never going to give up on you. And yet it's precisely because of that love that he has far greater plans and much greater glories than what you and I are currently settling for. And so what this passage is pushing us on is when you get to the end of your life, what is it that you want? What do you want? He's saying, do you want to be like me? And by grace, free of regret. Or do you want to stay half in and half out? Always wondering what might have been. With that, let's pray. So our worship team comes forward. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the call that you've placed on our lives, uh, that out of love for us, you want to conform us to Christ, draw us into union with him. And Lord God, that daily you give us new graces to make that so. And yet, Lord God, you know our progress or the lack of our progress, that there continue to be these things and thoughts that hold us back and weigh us down. And so I just pray this morning that you would set us free that for the sake of Jesus and the glory of his name, we would be genuinely resolved and wholeheartedly surrendered to the truly great plans you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.